we got a lot to go through today. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. We've been in this series called Equip. When we're reading 2 Timothy chapter 3, it says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine and reproof, for correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. What is the goal of this verse telling you? Is that we're trying to make sure that we are equipped. I think we can all agree that there's some crazy stuff going on. You need to be prepared to handle it. You need to know what to do. What happens when you're thrown all of this stuff, and how do you respond? The idea that we're looking for is we need to have a biblical worldview. When we look at things and, and whatever's going on in this world, no matter how good or bad it is, we must have a biblical worldview. Let me give you an example of this. It's pretty obvious and from a good standpoint that when we talk about having a biblical worldview, we look at it mostly, <laughs> excuse me, from a moral standpoint. That's not corona. It's just a little tickle in my throat, okay? Just, just bear with me. Oh, good. My wife brought essential oil, so we're all safe, all right? She's got her witch's brew. Anyway, so, <laughs> anyway, but we look at it from a moral standpoint, right? But what about things that kind of sound somewhat good, but may not necessarily be? They, they sound like it could be true. Let's give some examples of this, okay? Ready? God will never give you more than what you can handle. That true statement? Well, apparently he didn't get the memo, right? The whole premise of it is that we lean on God. He gives us way more than we can handle all the time. But, but it sounds good. It sounds really good, doesn't it? It's like, oh, yeah, God's out for me, and he loves me the way I am. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. That's why he sent his son in the world, to change you. Because you're a mess. You're a hot mess. All y'all. Me too. I mean, that's the thing. We've got all these cute little sayings, but what about from a moral standpoint? It was like, okay, well, let's talk about it this way. From a moral standpoint, it's pretty easy to discern. There's good and there's bad. But then there's a little bit of good and a little bit of bad. You can kind of mix it up. So I had a pastor tell me one time, this was many, many years ago, that the Lord told him that he was to leave his wife and marry one of his parishioners. What do you say to that? Well, but God told him. To make your arm wear out, aren't I? I mean, but God told him. See, the thing is, is when you have a biblical world, you can quickly discern through that. The problem is they're not always so easy. They're not always so black and white. Look at the example of when, the, uh, when Satan was tempting Jesus. He tempted him with things that were reasonable. Hey, you're hungry. It's been 40 days since you ate something. Why don't you turn those rocks into bread? But he had a biblical response. Then he said, hey, if you'll fall down and worship me, I'll give you everything you see. But he said, oh, you only worship God. The second one was that he said, why don't you just throw yourself off of this, this building and let the angels catch you. And then he quotes a, a passage out of Psalms. So he used scripture there. Those are a little nuance. Those are interesting. Those are where it's tough. That's where we have to have a complete understanding of scripture. And the problem we have today is the church body, the big C, Christianity today, has left the Bible behind. And we've gone towards what feels good, what sounds good, what works with our society and works with us culturally. We've left uh, something behind. And the subject of what we've left behind is what we're going to be discussing today. So let's go back to Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. 
Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age, and a spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. So therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, which you be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Okay? We've read it every week. We've looked at it. What, what is the takeaway here? You need the armor. The armor's been provided. you got to put it on. And if you do, you're able to withstand all the other nonsense. Fair enough? When we look at this armor as a whole, we see that it is set up to be a complete unit, a singular uh, method, if you will, a single, singular um, piece of machinery, I guess is how a better way to say that, is that it is not meant at any one piece. Don't just put on the, on the shoes. Don't just put on the helmet. Put it all on. Going out there playing football today, don't just put on some of your pads. Put on all of the pads. Like there's a purpose between all of them. And so you have to be able to use all of this. That is Paul's point here. Put it all on. And then we've gone to the part where we're talking about prayer. We looked at the different kinds of prayer. Uh, uh, there's obviously more than what I told you, but they would have, these Roman soldiers had these lances, these spears. We looked at verse 18. It says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. With this in view, be on alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. We are trying to be equipped. To be equipped, we have to be people of prayer. You cannot leave this out. Do you realize you also have to be a people of fasting? And you have to be a people of meditation. We have to take these spiritual disciplines and put them into our life every day if we are going to live the successful Christian life. You know what makes one successful in Christianity? Nothing like it does in anything else. Because to be successful in the world, it is how much money you made, how many babies you made. I mean, whatever the case may be, there's a moving target. But to be successful in Christianity is not whether you're a pastor, preacher, evangelist. It's not even necessarily how many people you have led to the Lord. It is all based on your obedience to God. Not the results, but simply the obedience in the act. The results are up to God. But your obedience is what you are judged off of. What did you do? How many excuses did you make that why you can't uh, preach to people? I cannot tell you how many times I've been in places they say, you know, I've lived this town, and I'm not talking about here. I've lived in this place my entire life, and people just don't want to listen to me because they remember like what I was like before. And I'm sitting there like, quit making excuses. If they saw how you were before and they see how you are today, that's a testimony, y'all. But we use an excuse, oh, they just won't listen to me. The fact is, if we just get out of our own way and say, okay, you know what? I just don't want to. I'm too scared to. Whatever. Deal with whatever the issue is. So what we're looking at here is being equipped to do the work of the ministry. We were not saved to just get into heaven. That is the way it is preached today. That is the way that is enacted upon. But honestly, if you look through the book of Genesis, there was a purpose of the whole Garden of Eden. There's a lot that's going on there. But when you see paradise lost Whoa. In Revelation, you see paradise regained, and everything in between is how God is going to do it to get to that point. And so when we look at this, we're trying to say, okay, God, what are you doing? He is trying to regain paradise. He's bringing it back. He wants to bring as many along as he can. And that's where you and I come and play a part. So we have to be able to navigate these hard waters that are out there. We need to be equipped. What does it mean to be equipped? We are supplied with every necessary item for a particular purpose. So as we look at this, prayer is crucial to the armor. We often leave it off, and when we look at it, we say this, praying in the Spirit. We've broken this down. What is it talking about? 
When we look at the different verses using Scripture to interpret Scripture, you can very clearly see that it is a reference to praying in tongues. Some people don't like to hear that. Some people want to think that this is just something that has gone away with, or it is just simply a foreign language. We will get to that later. But it's just a foreign language used by missionaries. That is not what it says. But there is something greater that's going on. Jude tells us to pray in the Spirit. Paul says, when I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prays. These are things that he's seeing. We watch this happen in Acts 2. The Holy Spirit comes upon them. And they begin to pray in tongues. It gets the attention of everybody around them. So what is happening in the events of Acts 2 that is so significant? As I broke down for you last week, the understanding of what's happening there is the Feast of Pentecost and why that's crucial. Because you have the coming together of two people groups. Right? The coming together of two people groups. The result of that is the praying in tongues. So the Holy Spirit falls, okay? He falls, and what do we see? Praying in tongues. But, in Pentecost is the only feast where you have bread that was leavened. There was two loaves on a sheet. The high priest would raise it up as the lamb went by. And he'd lower it down. He'd raise it up again. Another lamb goes by. It was a time that they all had to be in Jerusalem. That's why there's so many people there. So we begin to break this down, what is happening. But there's something significant taking place. Now, I, I just ask you to bear with me as I go through some of this today, because this is probably going to be stuff, I'm not sure I've ever taught this here, but it's going to be stuff that might be foreign, and it might mess up your previously held ideas. So just bear with me. You can disagree with me, but you'd be wrong, and that's fine. So what is the first thing that is going on? What was the purpose of Jesus dying on the cross? What was the purpose of the resurrection? What's he doing? He's creating a new covenant, right? Number one, new covenant. That's the first and foremost. That's the most important part, right? Sort of. Because without that new covenant, where are Gentiles? Not in the picture. You had to be, essentially become a Jew. So that new covenant is crucial. And now the old one was based upon works, based upon the law keeping, um, Sabbath keeping, based upon circumcision, all of these other things. And it could be broken. But the new covenant can't. It's between the Father and the Son on your behalf. It was for you, not by you. Fair enough? The second part we see with this new covenant is we have a new high priest. Now, if you've been around for a while, we talked about this. Did this happen in Acts 2 when he became the high priest? No, it did not. I believe that in, uh, when John baptized Jesus, it was the passing of the baton because John was an heir of, uh, uh, in the lineage of Aaron. The high priest at that time, Caiaphas, was not chosen by God, which is how it's supposed to be done. It was chosen by uh, Rome, essentially. I don't want to go down that path, but we have a new high priest. Why is that significant? Because without this new covenant, there's only one type of high priest. You had to be the lineage of Aaron. Jesus was not in the lineage of Aaron. Therefore, he was not qualified to be high priest. So you can call him whatever you want. But if it's based off of the Mosaic covenant, he does not qualify. He cannot be it. Therefore, we had to have a new covenant and we had to have a new high priest. But guess what was the central part of that old covenant? The thing that meant more to them than anything else. It was the temple. So what did he do? He made a new one. And you're looking at it. I wish he'd given it abs. But you and I are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is what's happening in Acts 2. This is the whole thing that was going on for years with the Feast of Pentecost. Why leaven this time? Well, God said so. Why did they read the book of Ruth? 
If I think it's online, do you, is the series I did on Ruth, do you remember, is it online somewhere? I don't know, go look. iTunes, SoundCloud, go find it if it's there, hopefully it's there. Um, I go through Ruth in its entirety, it's an incredible study, but it is one of those things that they read the book of Ruth. Well, she was a Gentile, she was not an Israelite, so therefore there's a whole bunch of stuff that's happening there, but he's bringing these two people groups together as one. So what is the purpose of what the events of Acts 2. Why is the Holy Spirit coming upon people? Well, why? So we can complete the armor, right? Because we need to be able to pray in tongues, right? That is the point of Acts 2 and why Jesus told them to wait, right? Some of you are afraid to answer. That's good. Because if you said that, you're wrong. Let's look at Luke 24, verse 44. Luke 24, verse 44, says, Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which was written in the, the law of Moses and the prophet and the Psalms concerning me. Remember, that's the entirety of the Old Testament. Those were the three segments that they had as Jews. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, that the repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. So why is he saying that? Remember, that they did not think that he had to die. They were confused. They were thinking he's setting up his kingdom. Verse 49, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, lifted up his hands and blessed him. It came to pass while he blessed him that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven, and they worshiped and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. What was the purpose of the Holy Spirit? It was not to pray in tongues. It was one thing. It was power. He said you need to be endued with power. He never mentions praying in tongues. Do you think they were standing there thinking like, I wonder if we're going to get our prayer language today. But that's how we preach it. That's how it's taught in churches. That we need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit with the what? Evidence of speaking in tongues. What happened to, we need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit so that we can be endued with power on high to spread the gospel to the nations. The byproduct of that is this. Now this is important. Don't, I am not diminishing this in any way. But what I'm telling you is that we need to get off of the byproduct and get onto the source. Get back to this. We got a powerless church. We got people that don't even pray for sick anymore because we never see anything happen. So we're just like, well, it must not be God's will. Remember, we spent that entire year going through whatever happened to the power of God. We've got all these doctrines that were formulated based off of experience. So therefore, God didn't heal. must not have been His will. Or maybe He doesn't heal today. Maybe you're in sin. You don't have enough faith. All these other excuses. They were to wait for the Holy Spirit so they can be endued with power from on high. The sign of that is praying in tongues. Now let's go on because let's go back to Acts chapter 1. Verse 4, we're going to see it again. Being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait on the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And I'm going to break this down here in a couple of weeks. But just bear with me for a little bit. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said, it is not for you to know the times and seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What were they endued with? Power. That was the point. 
He says, don't worry about the end stuff. Don't worry about my kingdom. Worry about waiting for the power. You need this. Now, don't misunderstand. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead. Okay? He's not some force. He's not some goosebump that you feel. Those may result, but ultimately he is a person coming upon you. Now, here we got the idea of where they were. Where did he tell them wait? Where did they wait? We see, I showed you guys this last week, but I've got a picture here of a, of a Jewish house. The upper room in which they were staying likely was there. It may have been near the temple. Houses nearer to the temple were, more, uh, were larger than ones that were further away. It's kind of like, you know, you get a house by the lake. It's a lot bigger than the house by the uh, truck stop or the house by the uh, trailer park or whatever. So they were bigger, so they would have been able to hold more people. But the question comes down is where were they at? Well, we see in Acts 2, 1, that they were, uh, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were with all one accord in one place. Suddenly there came from the sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. It filled the whole house where they were sitting, and there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So we see this Pentecost that's going on. Where were they? Very likely in the temple. I showed you this last week. Not that. That one. I showed you last week. They're at the temple all the time. This is where everything was happening. This is where that on Pentecost that they had to be. They had to be there for the sacrifice. They had to be there for the celebration, if you will. They were very likely in the temple. There's a distinction that they were in accord with one place and where they were sitting versus the house in which they were staying. There's a 10-day gap between chapter 1 and chapter 2, if you will. So it doesn't necessarily mean, does that mean that that's where they were? Not necessarily. Can I specifically show you that? No, because Luke didn't think to write down the address. Okay, But I'm telling you what more than likely what was going on. So they were very likely in the temple or at least very near it. That goes against the previously held belief, right? We're all thinking and there's some upper room and the Holy Spirit comes down. Well, then it comes down to how many were there? Well, it's very obvious it was 120, right? That's what it said. They were in staying, in the house that they were staying, there was 120, right? But is that what Scripture says? Well, let's look at Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were with one accord in one place. Suddenly came a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So far, we got nothing. Let's go on, uh, verse 5. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speaking in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all of these who speak Galileans? How is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful words of God. So they're all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others saying that they were full of, not, full of new wine, but Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice. Is it possible there were more people there? Yeah. What do we know for sure? It was Peter and the eleven. It was the twelve. Matthias being one of those. He was the one that they were chosen. In this moment, we see that what we know for sure is that these twelve had the Holy Spirit fall upon them. Who was Jesus talking to to go and wait? The 12, not the 120 necessarily. We don't know. There may have been more people around. What I'm telling you, guys, is let's not make assumptions. Let's go with what we know, and we'll go with what we see. These 12, what is happening here? We've got a new covenant, 
a new high priest, and now a new temple where the Holy Spirit is residing in us. Remember, the veil was torn. Why is that so significant? Because only one person could ever go behind the veil. It was the high priest, the Day of Atonement, one day a year, with all these prerequisites that must be met. So in this moment, we know that the twelve received the Holy Spirit, and that that would be the power that they were on high, and the result of that is praying in tongues, right? But is that the moment they received the Holy Spirit? Well, we got to go to John chapter 20, verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of Jews, the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed him his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad that they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace to you, as the Father sent me, I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. What does this mean? Well, the last part is very simple. That they had the authority to tell people that the forgiveness of sins is there. If you repent, your sins are forgiven. They, are, they have the authority. But what does it mean that he breathed on them to receive the Holy Spirit? Well, he told them to wait until they were endued with power from on high. Here, he breathed on them, they received the Holy Spirit. We may call this salvation. What I'm telling you is there is a difference between the Spirit within and the Spirit upon. And they have a different focus and a different purpose. Because the enduing with power is when the Holy Spirit came upon somebody. So what is going on in this moment? Because there's a fourth item here that often gets overlooked. And we're going to talk about some of the power stuff next week. But I need to show you this so you get what's happening in this moment. So let's go back to Acts chapter 2. Let's look at verse 5. I'm going to read it a little slower. Is that okay? All right. I mean, if you don't want me to, I can go faster. But you guys remember the Micro Machine Man? Anybody? Nothing? Nobody? You guys? I know they don't. All right, fine. YouTube it. You'll know what I'm talking about. Verse 5, and there were dwelling in Jerusalem devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, the sound of the wind, remember this wasn't necessarily their hair blowing everywhere, there was a sound. The multitude came together and were confused. Hold on to that word. Because everyone heard them speak in his own language. So why were they confused? They heard them speaking in their own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, are these not Galileans? Why did they say that? You've been around here for a while, you know why. Because the Galileans were considered the country bumpkins of Israel. They were uneducated, they didn't know anything, most of them couldn't read or write. They certainly were not bilingual or trilingual. Is quadlingual a thing? I don't know, but whatever. They were not any of this stuff. They were uneducated. These, we cannot be hearing this. They're Galileans. How is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians, Medes, Elamites. Those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? And we know what happens after that, and we'll talk about that more next week. There's something that's going on here that often gets overlooked. There's the reclamation of the world into one people group. My marker is dying. You can kind of see that. He's reclaiming the world. 
What I'm going to share with you guys today is something that's not often taught, almost never taught in church. Um, it often gets overlooked, but there's a lot that's happening. So we know as a result of, of all the work that Jesus did, we have a new covenant, we have a new high priest, and now we have this new temple that you and I are in. The fourth part of this is he's bringing the world back together as one people. When I say he's bringing them back together, that means at one point he separated them, right? So in order to understand what's happening, we need to go back to Genesis chapter 11. So we're going to talk about the Tower of Babel. And Genesis chapter 11 is, is kind of right past the part where the whole Noah's flood thing takes place. And God had told them to spread out, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So he told Noah, told the boys, listen guys, I need you to go start this thing over again. And we're going to see what happens in chapter 11. It says, now the whole earth had one language and one speech. Makes sense, right? And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. And then they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. So they had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now, they're setting this up. What did God tell Noah? Spread out. Go to all the world. What are they wanting to not have happen? They don't want to be scattered. They want to stay right here. Verse 5, but the Lord came down to the city and see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one and they all have one language. So we see this now mentioned twice. And, it, and this is what they began to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down and, there, and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from the Lord scattered them abroad and, and over the face of all the earth. So here we have a people group that the Lord comes down, and what's he do? He confuses their language. Now let's go back to Acts 2. What happened to them? They hear all these different people are hearing essentially one language. Because if I can speak words and communicate to multiple people group, it's as if I'm speaking one language, like I am right now. There ain't nobody in here that doesn't understand what I'm saying. Well, maybe. You get the point. Yeah. But here, it's as if you're speaking one language. Now you've got one people group splitting apart, speaking multiple languages. The confusion. You see how it works both sides. So he's bringing the people back together, reclaiming them as one. What happens immediately after this? What happens in chapter 12? God calls Abraham. Right? Think back to your children's church days. He goes and he chooses for himself a people group. Now this is where it gets confusing and this is where it's often not understood. When we start Bible study back up on Wednesday nights, where I'm going to teach you the book of Genesis. That's the one I've been asked about it multiple times. I get asked more questions about Genesis than probably anything else because there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of bad doctrine out there. So we're going to go verse by verse through the book of Genesis once we start back up. And I will go more in depth then about some of the events that are taking place, especially with the Garden of Eden, because you have no idea what it actually looked like because we have this, we, we've got too many artist renditions, okay? A bunch of nudists running around with animals talking and all this other stuff. So we'll go through that then, but bear with me. He takes for himself the people group. He scattered the people abroad. 
What I'm going to tell you is that when he does that, he takes the sons of God, which would be the angels, and puts them over these different people groups. And they were to push people back to Israel, to the nation of Israel, to worship Yahweh and Yahweh alone. What ends up happening is they take worship upon themselves, bringing judgment on themselves. Because what God was doing was what? What was the nation of Israel? A nation of priests and kings. That's what he was. He was setting this up, this priesthood. So, to understand what I'm saying, I know I'm saying a lot, but bear with me. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, that's where we're going to go. I'm going to begin to show you guys this and break this down a little bit. Deuteronomy chapter 32, we're going to start in verse 7. We're going to read it very slowly because I want you to see what it's saying. Remember the days of old. So Deuteronomy is written by Moses. Moses, this is 32, we're getting towards the end. He's telling them, like, hey, you know, when you guys go into the promised land, I'm about done. It's kind of his last uh, hurrah before he, before he passes on. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, and he will show you. Your elders, and they will tell you. So in other words, ask the old people. They'll tell you about this. When the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, and he separated those sons of Adam's, he sets the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. So when did he divide the nations? Genesis 11. He separated the sons of Adam. He sat boundaries upon the peoples. What happens when people have, are all speaking the same language? They congregate together. If you go into major cities, you see that all the time. Why do you think there's a Chinatown? Because they tend to congregate together. It's no different. If we all go and move to El Salvador, all us English-speaking folks are going to be hanging out because we don't understand anything the other folks are saying. We can't communicate with them. So it's natural that. But God sets boundaries upon these people. And what's he take? His portion, Jacob, is his inheritance. Jacob being Israel. You guys see that so far? Okay. Now look at Deuteronomy chapter 4. In verse 15. It says, take careful heed to yourselves, for you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, or the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, and the likeness of any fish that is in the water beneath the earth. Did he leave anything out? I don't think he did. I think he pretty much got it covered. And take heed, lest you lift your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the host of heaven, you feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be his people in inheritance as you are this day. What did we just read? When you're there going into the promised land, this is ultimately what he's getting at, and you lift your eyes to heaven, you'll be driven to worship the heavenly host, the things that you, and to serve them. You guys see this? The Lord God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage. Who, who set that up? God did. He set up, in other words, it's, they're, they're known in the Bible as the watchers, these, these heavenly hosts over different nations, ultimately to drive people back to God but they take worship upon themselves. The Lord has taken you 
and brought you out of the iron furnace to be his people and inheritance. So you notice there's a distinction in the nation of Israel. Has that ever changed? No, it's not. It's still, still the same today. So there's a difference. You guys seeing this? I know this is weird, and I know I'm, you know it's kind of confusing because this is not taught. But you've got to kind of get this, is that essentially what God has done is he set boundaries, and there's these people groups that were there. And then the sons of God, his angels, his messengers, his, his, his servants, if you will, were over these people. And they should have pointed people back to God, but they take worship upon themselves. In Psalm 82, here's another one. Verse 1, God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. Now, what do we see here? Well, what is the congregation of the mighty? You need to understand that. That it is kind of like this throne room, if you will. And what is the mighty? These men of old, men of renown, things like that. You've got God, and you've got gods. So what is the Hebrew word for God? Well, one is Yahweh, but most of the time it's Elohim. Elohim. So that is why that's capitalized, right? But what do you think the word is for the little gods? It's the same word. Elohim. So in other words, he's, he's talking about these angelic beings. He, he is judges among the gods. Why do you think that Ezekiel is calling down fire? Hey, you, you do all your things. And you, you get them wet and you sacrifice to your gods and all this stuff. And then we'll call down fire. Or Elijah, not Ezekiel. One of those guys. Starts with an E. Should have named him normal. Why? Name him Bill. Would have been a lot easier. But he says, you and you sacrifice and see if your gods can call fire from heaven. And they could not. And then God proved himself. This is all the stuff that's going on in the backdrop of Scripture. You ask a, a studious Jewish person why the world is screwed up the way it is. Their answer is different than yours and I. Because why do we talk about sickness and sin and death being in the world? Where do we go back to? The fall. We always go back to the fall. But a Jewish person will take you back to three spots. You've got the fall of man. You've got the events of Genesis 6 where the sons of God took for themselves the daughters of men and made a race of giants called the Nephilim. And then you've got Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel. Those are the three things that they will take you to as a result of that. Why is that? Because these gods were real. Why do you think they would worship and sacrifice? These people were not crazy. In fact, they were highly intelligent. They're smarter than we are today. I mean, you look at archaeology, you study this stuff out, it is crazy how smart they were. So they weren't just crazy, abstract people just like, hey, let's go carve something and worship it and sacrifice to it. There was something going on. There were these principalities and powers in the heavenly places. So when we look at this, we see God judging among the gods. He's making a distinction between himself and all of these lesser gods. So what am I talking about? If you look at Greek mythology, it is amazing how closely it associates with Scripture. Not in the weird way, but the fact that these things. I mean, you talk about Genesis 6 as an example. You've got the sons of God being the angels, the daughters of men coming together and marrying and creating a race of giants, the mighty men of old. What does that sound like? Hercules. Right? It's the same thing. You've got the God and the daughter of a man, and it came together and it made a super baby. It's what movies are made out of. But, I mean, that's essentially what it is. Where did they get that concept from? They got it from what was going on. So you have to see what's happening here. God here in this moment is bringing the world back to himself as one people. Because in order to, be, uh, to worship Yahweh, what did you have to do? You had to come into Israel. You had to renounce your past, all your false gods, all of these other things. 
You'd have to get circumcised and keep all the commandments of the law. The Jews were to treat you as if you were a natural-born citizen, a natural-born Jew. And what do we see in Acts chapter 2? We see that the Jews and the proselytes were both there. So the people that had come underneath covenant with God that way. But that's how they had to do it. But before that, before Genesis 11, you had one people group. So we see these things taking place. He's reclaiming the world. Now let's look at this from a New Testament perspective. In Genesis, or excuse me, Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, it says, For you are all sons of God, how? Through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Now don't misunderstand that we're baptized as something dealing with water. There's neither Jew nor Greek. What's the difference between a Jew and a Greek? You got Jews and everybody else, Greek, Gentile, whatever. Neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So in other words, you were all separated from God, but now you're all one. You've all come together. How? Through faith in Christ. This is a part of that new covenant. With the new high priest, you now are the new temple. He has reclaimed the world once again to himself. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. What have we been reading out of? Ephesians chapter 6. So this is that context. You want to know the context of the book of Ephesians? Read the whole book. Ephesians chapter 2, start in verse 11. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh. So who is he talking to? Gentile people, non-Jewish people. Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made by, uh, in the flesh by hands. Now, what's the difference between the two? The circumcision of the Jews. I'll talk about that next week. That was a sign of that covenant. They were called uncircumcision because it was everybody else. And the Jews weren't the only ones that circumcised, just so you know. Verse 12. That at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What has he done? He's brought in the whole world. You guys seeing this? Let's go on. Verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinance, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. And through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. One spirit. The Holy Spirit came upon them. You guys, you guys see how this all intertwined? Because you've got to get this. Verse 19. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now, I'm going to stop there for a second. When he says, therefore, it means because of all of this, you're no longer strangers and foreigners. It's interesting that he uses that word, especially in today's day and age, because you can go back into the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Numbers, and it talks about how you don't forsake the foreigners, the alien among you. And they try to use that as saying we should just have open borders. That is not what it's saying. What was a foreigner and what was a stranger to a Hebrew person? The context of the Scripture. It was somebody who came into their nation, but he was an outsider. But he would bring himself under covenant with God. That was the foreigner. So he relinquished his past, all his false gods, all his bad habits, even his nationality. 
And now he is to be considered a natural-born Jew. Now, that's not how they necessarily treated them, but that's the way it was supposed to work. That's the word that Paul's using here. You're no longer strangers and foreigners. You're a fellow citizen. So in other words, you're no longer an outsider. You are in covenant with Yahweh. In this case, through faith in Christ, now you are in this new covenant with the new high priest. You are now a temple of the Holy Spirit because he has reclaimed the world as one. So therefore, you're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on what? The foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So what do we see? We are the temple. All of us who come to God through faith in Christ, which is how you enter in to this new covenant, the covenant that was taken, uh, put together for you and not by you. It is not a covenant that was negotiated between God and yourself. It was between the Father and the Son that all who enter in are now in. But it goes on. Let's look at chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, so what does that mean? Because of all of this, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles. So now we know who he's talking to. If you were confused, he was talking about people who were considered at one point not able to come to God. See that in Acts 10 and 11. If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it now has been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. So, in other words, this whole thing was a mystery. Nobody expected it. Nobody saw it coming. They didn't understand it. But Paul's had a revelation on it. So what is this mystery? Verse 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. That was the mystery. The rest of the world that was dispersed in Genesis chapter 11, who began to worship these angels, these fallen beings, and did not bring worship to Yahweh as they should, because the nation of Israel did not draw them in as they should. They were to be separated, unique, just like when they came out. The story of the Red Sea crossing traveled the entire world. That's why you see it brought up. We know that we were freaked out. Jericho was freaked out because they heard about what God had done. And just like that, they were supposed to be separated and unique, and yet they constantly did not do that. So the mystery was is that these Gentiles are now fellow heirs of the same body through the gospel of Christ. What is the gospel? He tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus died and he was buried, and he was raised three days later, according to the Scriptures. That is the gospel. He tells us exactly what it is. So verse 8, To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, the grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities in power, in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you, do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Now, look what he said there in verse 10. 
the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to whom? The principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Who are the people that God put over those nations that were separated? The principalities and powers over these nations. Moses tells them, like, don't look up there. You'll be drawn to worship them when you go into this land. You guys seeing how all of this is interconnecting? Now, so what is he doing? He's making a declaration. These people are now able to come into fellowship with God. There's no more steps to take because it's through the gospel, it's through what is done. It's made a declaration to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. He's putting them on alert. They're no longer yours. They can freely choose to come to me at any time. You don't have to go to Israel. You don't have to come underneath that covenant. You don't have to do any of this. It's now free to come. Now, principalities and powers in heavenly places. Does that sound familiar at all? Because look at the end of the book. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. In other words, they're still there. And they're still fighting, but they've been put on alert. All of this is taking place in Acts chapter 2. It's kind of deep, isn't it? It's not as shallow as we've made it. We always focus on the little nuances, the results. But look at all the stuff that is going on. Look at what is happening here. This is so huge. We take it for granted. Our entire lives, we're like, well, you just kind of come as you are. I'll take you as you are and all this stuff. Imagine prior to this new covenant being in place, what a person had to do to come to God. I mean, they had to give up everything. They had to go into a land that they didn't know to worship the true God, not to worship the false gods anymore, but to worship the true gods. And then they had to sacrifice and they had to become circumcised. It's the reason we do it on the eighth day when you're a baby. You don't remember it. It's actually deeper than that, but that's besides the point. You had to keep these commandments. The Sabbath, a sign of that covenant. They had to keep that. You mean, wait a minute, what if somebody's attacking me? Well, it says keep the Sabbath. Okay, but what if i got to go out and till the garden? It says keep the Sabbath. Like there weren't options. This is all new. But now he's put on high alert all these principalities and powers in these heavenly places. They no longer belong to you. This is powerful. So why do we put on that armor? It's because they're not going down without a fight. We wrestle against them. Those thoughts, all of those ideas, we wrestle against them. But all of this has taken place in Acts chapter 2, and we're just getting started. Okay? I promise you, when we look at this from a truly scriptural standpoint, not the stuff that we have, imagine what would happen. There was one purpose of the Holy Spirit coming upon them, to be endued with power. That has never changed. 